Bienvenidos, I'm your host Lore, and this is Creepy Chisme. Warning, some stories and information on Creepy Chisme may be triggering and are not suitable for all, especially young children. Please listen with caution. Thank you. Hola mi gente, happy Freaky Friday. I've always told you guys that I am obsessed, if you know me by now, obsessed with everything creepy, but really obsessed with aliens. And the second thing is missing persons. So people that just vanish without a trace and are never, ever found. Whenever I hear of a missing person, immediately I think, oh my gosh, somebody killed them. But then it's the ones that nobody finds. So what happens to them? So um, this was a story I heard a long time ago. Maybe 2013 is when I first heard it. 2014, around that time when I really got into true crime. But this story is about the Sodder family. And that is S-O-D-D-E-R, Sodder family. Main point of the story is in this huge family, a few of their children go missing, I think on Christmas or Christmas Eve. And it's weird. Like the whole story is weird. Leading up to the story is weird. So let me just get right into it. Now I am reading this story off of one of my favorite sites to look up weird stuff. And it's called thehistoricmysteries.com. So here we go. This is the story of the missing Sodder children. On Christmas Day 1945 in the Appalachians, a devastating fire broke out at the residence of George and Jenny Sodder. Around 1 a.m., four of the ten Sodder children survived. One of their children had been away fighting in the war, but the other five disappeared from the house the night of the incident. No trace of any of their remains turned up in the aftermath. Although authorities ruled the cause as faulty wiring, mysterious occurrences in the days and hours leading up to the disaster, plus evidence of a sabotage at the Sodder house, suggest something far more sinister. Now, the members of the Sodder family who survived the fire were George, Jenny, who were the parents, John, who was 23, George Jr., who was 16, Marion, who was 17, Sylvia, who was 3, and Joseph or Joe, who was 21. Joe was the one who was away in the army. Now, the five children who disappeared were Maurice, who was 14, Martha, who was 12, Louise, who was 9, Jenny, who was 8, and Betty, who was 5. The small coal mining town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, was home to a thriving Italian-American population. Most of the community knew the Sodders as a respectable, upstanding family. George Sodder had immigrated from Sardinia in 1908, and then at the age of 50, owned a truck hauling business. World War II had just ended on December 2nd, 1945. Only eight months prior, communists had killed fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, which left the Italians highly divided. Supporters of Mussolini were outraged. George was politically outspoken and held strong anti-fascist views about Mussolini. Consequently, he had enraged bitter distrust among those of his fellow Italian immigrants who had loved the Italian leader. Now, in the months leading up to the fire, a few strange encounters took place. So first, an unknown man approached George Sodder at his home looking for work. 
After George told him he didn't need any workers, the man looked up at the fuse box outside and said, quote, This is going to cause a fire someday, end quote. The remark seemed odd since George recently had the power supply company check the electrical wires and all checked out fine. Another notable visit took place at the Sodder house just weeks before the fire. A local salesman tried to sell life insurance to them. Upon George's refusal, the exasperated salesman threatened, quote, Your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. End quote. Anybody else thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> I mean, it's very clear that there are people out to get this man. I mean, this one literally just admitted that he would do it, right? Just before Christmas, the older Sutter boy saw a suspicious car parked along Highway 21 for a few days in a row. A man inside the car was watching the Sutter children closely as they returned from school. Now, the night before Christmas, and all through the house, it was frigidly cold. <laughs> Jenny and George Sutter were ready to turn in for the evening with three-year-old Sylvia at about 10.30 p.m. The oldest girl, Marion, had brought home some toys from the dime store where she worked and gave them to the younger children. Jenny allowed them to stay up later than usual to play with their new gifts, but she reminded the boys, Morris and Louise, oh sorry, it's not Louise, it's Louis. <laughs> it's because I call one of my cousins Louise and I, I spell it like that. It's Louis, sorry. So she reminded the boys, Maurice and Louis, that before they go to bed, they need to shut the chicken coop and feed the cows. So about midnight, a phone call forced Jenny Sodder awake. When she answered, a woman asked for an unknown name. Jenny would later recall that the woman had a weird laugh, and others were also laughing and clinking glasses in the background. Jenny told the woman she had the wrong number and didn't think much about it. Now at the time, the house was all quiet. Marion was asleep on the couch, and Jenny noticed that the doors were unlocked and the curtains were still open. Typically, the children take care to secure the house before they turn in for bed. For some reason, not on this night, Jenny locked up and closed the shades, assuming that the rest of the children had gone to sleep in the attic. She then retreated to her bed. About a half hour passes, and Jenny woke up when she later described, quote, something hit the roof like a rubber ball. It rolled and hit the ground with a thump, end quote. However, she didn't pay much attention to it and went back to sleep. Another half hour passed, and this time, she awoke to the smell of smoke. George, Jenny, the baby, Mary and John, and George got out. Unfortunately, the staircase to the attic had begun to fill up with fire. Oddly, when the Sodders yelled up to the attic, they heard no response from the younger children. As Jenny explained, quote, I ran to the bottom of the stairs where the children were supposed to be sleeping. I yelled and yelled, and two boys, John and George Jr., came stumbling down. Their hair was singed by the flames, end quote. Perhaps the most suspicious part of this story lies in George Sodder's attempts to rescue his children as his house went up in flames. Sodder recalled that there was a ladder permanently leaning on the side of his house for regular maintenance such as cleaning the gutter and fixing the roof. George's first idea was to get the children using this ladder. 
However, according to reports from the night of the fire, the ladder wasn't where it should have been. Unbeknownst to them, at the time, it was lying in a roadside ditch away from the house. Meanwhile, Marion tried to call the fire department, but the phone didn't work. She had to run to a neighbor's house to call, and even then, an operator wasn't available. Eventually, a good Samaritan got in touch with the fire station from a phone in town. George's second effort to re-enter the burning house was to drive his work trucks to the side and climb over the top of them to the upper window. But when he tried to start them, George discovered that neither of the trucks would start. While the Sauter family faced one misfortune after another, their house burned to the ground in only 45 minutes. Now, firefighters did not appear until around 7 a.m. By then, all that remained was rubble and the hot ashes. The search for the children lasted until 11 a.m., but nothing turned up. The state police deemed that the blaze started due to faulty wiring, but later withdrew their statement. Then, Fayetteville Fire Chief F.J. Morris conducted a thorough investigation and found nothing to contradict the ruling of faulty wires, nor any evidence of bodies. Charles Payne from the funeral home went to the site the next day to collect the bodies, but he found no remains. Years later, Payne's wife, Velma, commented, quote, It seems to be a mystery. End quote. No shit, Velma. <laughs> Several days after the blaze, the coroner put together an inquest consisting of a jury that would determine the cause of the fire. Interestingly, one of the jury members was the man who told George that his children would be destroyed and his house would burn down. Not surprisingly, the jury also ruled that faulty wiring caused the fire. The Satters did not agree. It occurred to them that the house lights remained on for some time as they watched their home burn down. Jenny later commented that they could not have found their way out of the house without the lights on. Additionally, George had replaced the old wiring to install a new electric stove. The facts just did not add up, and the Sodders were questioning the faulty wiring explanation. Several other discoveries cast more doubt in the Sodders' minds. A telephone repairman informed them that someone had cut the phone lines. That could be the reason why Marion couldn't phone out not because the lines had burned. Neighbors saw a man stealing a block and tackle at the Sodder's place while the fire was raging. Police later arrested him and he admitted that he climbed up and cut the wires. The man said he thought he had snipped the electrical cables, but it appears that he cut the phone wires instead. No one seems to know what came of this arrest or why police didn't follow it up. Another witness, a bus driver who worked the late shift, said that he saw balls of fire landing on the roof. By now, the circumstances were pointing toward arson. Then came the witnesses who said they saw the Sodder children. So the following reports of sightings emerged. A girl claimed to have seen the children in a car that was driving away as the fire raged. Someone working in a motel about 50 miles outside Fayetteville claimed to have seen the children the day after the fire. At a Charleston hotel, a woman reported seeing the kids check in along with two women and two men of Italian heritage. Her account goes, Quote, the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner. The men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. 
end quote. A missionary saw a picture of the children in the paper and claimed that he saw the children in a house in Cortez, Florida. A private detective who investigated this lead said that they were definitely there but were gone. Apparently, five different people had seen them in Cortez. Interesting, hmm? <laughs> I mean, the clues are all here. This was a setup. Even without going on anymore, you can clearly tell that this was a setup. But who did it? Now, unsatisfied with the conclusion of the investigation, Jenny Sauter began searching for answers. She experimented with animal bones in her wood stove, trying the best she could to get them to burn down. She was unable to reduce them to ashes. Now, I was going to ask that question because I don't know that either. I wanted to know if a fire could be so hot. I mean, the fire was burning until 7 a.m. when the fire department showed up. That's a long time. So can bones disintegrate if the fire's hot enough? That, that's one of my questions, but I guess not. When Jenny read about another house fire in the newspaper that burned the house down and killed seven family members, she knew she was on to something. Investigators had recovered the remains of all seven bodies in the rubble. Frustrated with the lack of answers from the authorities in the Sauter case, she reached out to a crematorium worker. He certified that even bodies burned at 2,000 degrees for two hours leave charred bones. At the Ground Zero site after the September 11th attacks, human remains survived the jet fuel fires. It is utterly implausible that an electrical fire, which lasts which lasted for 45 minutes would leave appliances but no trace of the children. George and Jenny hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley who could help with the Sauter children disappearance. He heard that the fire chief Morris told some folks that he had found a heart at the scene and buried it in a dynamite box. The detective contacted Morris and convinced the chief to show it to him and George. Together, they went to the site and dug it up. Tinsley took the organ to a funeral director who determined that it was a chunk of beef liver. What the hell? <laughs> so weird. George also sent the liver to Washington for testing and the document returned, confirming it was beef liver. However, the organ had never been in a fire, which indicates that Morris had placed it there some sometime later. Rumors circulated that Morris had admitted to few folks that he staged the organ in the rubble to pacify the Sodders and to get them to stop investigating. Evidently, the authorities wanted them to believe the children had perished in the fire. Why are they trying so hard to just let this story end with the children burned in the fire? If you have a family who is like, no, I want to investigate further, how frustrating to have literally everyone telling you like, no, just leave it. Like, that's so horrible. So horrible. Three months following the Sodder disaster, Sylvia was playing around the rubble while the Sodders visited their former home. She found a hollow green object made of hard rubber. It had a twist cap. Sylvia wondered if that could have been the object that hit the roof. George took the strange item to military officials. They told him it was a napalm bomb. In 1949, George and Jenny hired a pathologist from Washington, D.C., Dr. Oscar B. Hunter, Jr. A few days after the fire, George Sauter had covered the basement remains with several feet of dirt. B. 
because he planned to turn the site into a memorial for the children. During Hunter's excavation of the site, some human vertebral bones surfaced. He sent them for analysis at the Smithsonian Institution. Researchers determined that the age of the bones was inconsistent with the ages of the Satter children. Additionally, the bones showed no signs of charring. The bones, the report concluded, were most likely in the supply of dirt George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. In 1968, the Satters received a letter in the mail containing a photo of a grown-up young man who resembled Louis Satter. The postmark was from Kentucky, but there was no return address. Inside, there was also a message, quote, Louis Satter, I love Brother Frankie, ill boys or little boys, A91032 or 35, end quote. With such a cryptic note, this was perhaps a cruel prank. Still, it was another strange twist in this tale. Over the two decades following the fire, George and Jenny Sauter would receive leads in the form of photos or antidotes from people who claimed to have heard information about the incident. However, None of these proved reliable and only further obscured the story. In 1952, George and Jenny had erected a large billboard on Route 16 with pictures of the missing Sauter children and a reward for $10,000. They maintained the board for 37 years. In the end, they had spent more than $15,000, that's more than $200,000 today, on a slew of, of private investigators and travel expenses across the country during their search. Now, despite the official determination that the five youngest Sodders died in an electrical fire, the evidence alludes to a sinister criminal conspiracy. Everyone was aware that several members of the Fayetteville Italian community had grievances with George Sodder. Uninvited visitors to their home foreshadowed what would happen on Christmas Day. Possibly the late-night phone call was to ensure that Jenny and George were awake to survive the impending fire. Also, it surely cannot be a coincidence that the missing children were the ones who stayed up late to play. The most logical conclusion is that people hostile to George Satter wanted him to suffer a painful lesson for the rest of his life. In other words, the circumstances scream foul play. I agree. I agree. I agree. To this day, one prevailing theory, oh my gosh, I've been thinking this the whole time, <laughs> is the Italian Mafia. Today, the only member of the family still alive is Sylvia Sauter. Her parents hoped that the story and memory of the Sauter children could remain alive, and Sylvia has faithfully organized a memorial every year in Fayetteville. Sylvia will be 77 this year. George Sauter died in 1969 at the age of 73. Jenny Sauter passed away in 1989, she was 85, and continued to grow flowers at the site where the children disappeared. The Sauter parents vowed to search for their children until their deaths, and they did. So yeah, I agree with this article. A man by the name of Adam Lyman wrote this article, and I could not agree more. With all the information, all the witnesses' statements, clearly this was a setup didn't want to say the Italian mafia because I'm not sure how prominent it was in that area, but I definitely thought it. <laughs> so yeah, I I just want to know what happened to the kids though. Like if they stole the kids or kidnapped the kids, right? Where did they go? And did they get to live or did they murder them? Now, if it was the Italian mafia, definitely murdered the kids. How horrible and how ugly that must be. 
even to think about it, but why would they keep them alive? And then after all this time, never let them go. But I do agree. I think it was a setup. But this case remains in the true crime world. One of the greatest conspiracy theories because nobody knows. They've vanished without a trace. But one thing is for sure that we can all agree on is not one single remain or clue was left in the house that night on Christmas Day in 1945. Gracias por escuchar y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, stay creepy!